Hello there, and welcome to The Road to Nicaea, Christ, Creed, and Controversy in the Turbulent Fourth Century, part of the Earth and Altar Podcast Network. Episode 27, The Reclaimed Genius, Gregory of Nyssa's Legacy. We've spent a lot of time talking about Gregory's voluminous work and his wide-ranging thought that spanned all areas of theology. You've heard me say multiple times that Gregory's thought continues to be a source of inspiration to all kinds of different thinkers today. So, in this episode, we're going to spend a little bit of time unpacking that legacy in greater detail. After all, part of the story of the Nicene Creed is the way it remains an important statement of faith today. And of course, it's not just the creed itself, it's the way that all the theology and thought that went into it still informs us today. So why not spend just a little bit of time describing how some of its biggest thinkers continue to inspire? And, This is a very good time to be doing that work in the year of our Lord 2023. Because in the last century, there has been a massive rediscovery of Gregory's works. Works that were lost to many of us for centuries. Why is it that Gregory's legacy, and the legacy of the Greek-speaking theologians in general, has been so lost, especially in the West? Why is it that starting really in the early medieval period, the work of the Cappadocians was basically ignored? Doesn't that seem kind of, well, dumb to leave all these geniuses in the past? Well, dear listener, don't be so harsh. Put yourself in their shoes for a change. Picture the place. Rome. The year. 476. The temperature? Scorching mostly because all of the buildings are on fire, as Germanic armies are charging through the city, looting and pillaging, and generally just making a mess of everything. (laughs) The Senate has already accepted its fate. It sent the Imperial Seal all the way to the Eastern Augustus, so it wouldn't fall into the hands of the invading horde. You look to your right. A warrior is disemboweling your next-door neighbor. You look to your left. Soldiers are dividing plunder and getting their grubby Germanic tribal warrior hands all over your beautiful cultured Roman possessions. But that was my best what would trauma. you be thinking in that moment? If what you're thinking is, oh dear, I had better save all these Latin translations of the Cappadocians so that we can have the treasures of their wisdom for centuries to come, then congratulations, because you are now dead. The Germanic tribal warriors have chopped off your head while you were trying to disassemble your home library. Knowledge of the Greek language was never particularly widespread in the West. With the fall of Rome, there were no centers of learning left in the West to preserve that kind of knowledge, and the nerds who tried too hard got their heads chopped off during the fall. Now, there were occasionally scholars who knew Greek and could do a quick translation in a pinch. The Irishman John Scotus Ereugena in the 800s was probably the most prominent example of this, and we know, in fact, that Ereugena produced a Latin translation of a few of Gregory of Nyssa's works. So it's not like there was no knowledge of the Greek-speaking theologians. Why didn't they catch on in the Middle Ages? Well, put yourself into their shoes one more time. Picture it, the time, the Middle Ages, the place, somewhere in Europe, really anywhere. Princesses are being captured by dragons every fortnight. 
Strange women lying in ponds are distributing swords to local aspiring royalty. And everyone, everywhere, no matter their language, speaks in a Cockney accent. You are a local priest. Did you go to seminary? Probably not. Do you have any training in Bible or theology? Eh, eh, unlikely. Only the elite clergy who came from wealthy families and would get placed in the biggest churches could afford any study, and the opportunities for such study were rare anyway. So there you were, untrained, unlearned, your bishop having just laid on hands and made you a priest. And you say to your bishop, Oh, blimey, bishop! I have no idea what this fancy theology is you keep hocking on about. I'm just a simple but evil priest. What should I do? I told you everybody talked with a Cockney accent. And your bishop, instead of giving you a long study program, probably just handed you a collection of Latin sermons and said, Here, preach these, and don't worry your pretty little head too hard about what you're saying. The sermons that you would have been given would be part of the collected works of St. Augustine. St. Augustine, as many of you will know, was a North African bishop and a prolific writer. He was one of the greatest geniuses of the first millennium of Christianity, probably the only one who can rival Origen of Alexandria for that title, and he was also one of the best Latin writers of all time. Now, Augustine was good at pretty much everything, but there was one exception, and that exception was the Greek language. He hated Greek, hated it from his school days, and he was not particularly familiar with the theology of most of the folks writing in Greek. Now, as a result of this, Augustine formulated a theology that was strikingly different from that of his Greek colleagues, and his work would become the foundation of most later Western theology, in part because his work is what was given to all the Latin-speaking priests as the only thing they could read and preach on. Because Augustine's theology was so dominant, little room was left for the thoughts of the comparably less famous Cappadocians. Like most authors writing in Greek, Gregory began to be rediscovered during the Renaissance, when knowledge of Greek became more common in Europe, but even then he was among the less well-known of the ancients. For example, the reformer John Calvin cites Gregory of Nazianzus pretty frequently in his works, and Basil the Great gets a couple of mentions as well. But brilliant younger brother Gregory of Nyssa gets no mentions at all. It really wasn't until the 20th century that Gregory of Nyssa would get his chance to shine. The reason? A bunch of really bored Roman Catholic theologians. Let me explain. For most of the 20th century, there was really only one name in Roman Catholic theology. That name was Thomas Aquinas, the 13th century Dominican friar, philosopher, and polymath. Back in 1879, the Pope at the time had issued a decree called Eterni Patris. That just means of the Eternal Father, but it sounds way cooler in Latin. Now, this decree basically told all Roman Catholic theologians that they had to prove their theology was in agreement with everything that Aquinas had ever written. I, I mean, it didn't say it quite that baldly, but the decree just went on and on about how great Aquinas was, how the universities where they taught about Aquinas were just the best, real models of intellectual community, and wouldn't it be just so great if everybody did their thinking in conversation and agreement with Aquinas? Hint, hint. Most Catholic theologians picked up what the Pope was putting down, 
and realized that if they wanted to have a voice in the decisions of the church, they needed to talk about Thomas. Kind of a lot. Now, if you read Aquinas, you will know that if you talk about Aquinas, you have to talk about Augustine, because Thomas is in that medieval Latin-speaking tradition for whom Augustine is the single biggest authority. He's the source that Thomas cites the most. So most Roman Catholic theology kept following in that Thomistic, Augustinian mold. However, not everyone was so content to let the Pope tell them who they could think with. And I mean, talking about the same old dead guys gets kind of boring after a while. So there was a movement within Roman Catholicism to change this, appropriately called Nouvelle Theology. French for New Theology, the Nouvelle Theology movement confronted the decaying, staid standards of Roman Catholic theology with a bold proclamation. No more. No more talking about the same old dead guys over and over again. No more pretending that the same old dead guys had all the answers. It's time to sing a new song to the Lord. It's time to think bold new thoughts. It's time to read different old dead guys and think with them instead. The Road to Nicaea brought to you by Old Dead Guys. Because, seriously, this is a podcast about the 4th century. Who else would it be brought to you by? Gregory of Nyssa was one of the foremost figures in this ancient androcentric analysis. In a celebrated book called Presence and Thought, the theologian Hans Urs von Balthasar gave an interpretation of Gregory's thought that sparked a whole bunch of thinkers, both Catholic and Protestant, to conduct their own studies of the man. This, in turn, led to a whole bunch of Gregory's works being translated into English, which is the reason why we can review his works for this podcast. We have had more access to Gregory's thought in the modern era than anybody has had in the West for a very, very long time. So what have we done with it? What have we done with Gregory of Nyssa? The short answer is, a lot, more than I can cover in a single podcast episode. But I do want to highlight a few trends that we have seen in contemporary theology. Gregory of Nyssa is such a profound figure that it's worthwhile to spend a few minutes of your life learning the ways that his reflections continue to animate the life of the church. So let's talk about trend number one, which draws inspiration from Gregory's account of the human being. I'm going to use Catherine Tanner as an example of this. She's an Episcopal theologian, and you can find her reflections in her book, Christ the Key. Tanner notes that Gregory frequently describes the human being as a mirror. Whatever the human being turns toward is what it will begin to look like. Now, Gregory says that sin is like dust on our mirror, preventing us from fully displaying the image of God that we are supposed to be showing in our thoughts and actions. That is why sin is such a problem. It distorts our ability to mirror God. And since mirroring is part of being human, sin prevents us from being fully human. You could also say that heresy is particularly problematic because human beings are mirrors. Heresies present a materially false picture of God and Christ, enticing us to turn away from the true God to a reasonable but unsatisfying facsimile. And in the process, it prevents us from imaging the one true God, because our attention is focused elsewhere. What Tanner points out is that if we take Gregory very seriously on this point, it will help us kick a bad habit that we have fallen into. Specifically, people spend a whole lot of time and effort trying to define 
what a human being is. And often by trying to define some kind of universal human nature without reference to anything else. The problem with this strategy is that it pretty much never seems to work. So when you start to try to find these universal human traits, you'll often find they're not nearly that universal. Or not that unique. Do you think all humans raise children in nuclear families? Wrong. Plenty of human societies have raised and continue to raise children in the context of the whole community. Think that humans are the linguistic species, the only one that communicates and thinks and reasons? Well, wrong again. Whales have pretty complex languages, and bees can display remarkable intelligence in the operations of their hive. Maybe humans have a bit more of those things than other animals do, but the mere fact that we have them, that can't be our defining trait. And on and on with pretty much any example you might come up with. So, in the face of that, other thinkers have leaned in the other direction, emphasizing the changeability, the plasticity of human nature. In other words, kind of embracing its ability to be whatever it needs to be in relationship to its environment. Now, this is a strategy that has been reinforced by developments in neuroscience. It's now pretty widely accepted that our brains contain something called mirror neurons. Neurons which will fire either when we perform an action or when we observe somebody else performing that action. For example, when I move my arm, certain neurons will fire to send an electrical signal from my brain to my arm to say, hey, let's move now, arm. But some of those very same neurons will also fire if I see somebody else raising their arm. It's hypothesized that mirror neurons are a big part of how babies learn to move. They literally learn by taking in their observations of others, by mirroring them. Equally important for this strategy has been a series of developments in sociology and anthropology that emphasize just how socially constructed our minds and bodies are. We learn to think in certain patterns and not others because of how our languages are structured. Research also shows that children pick up the implicit biases of their societies within a few years of their birth. Now, Catherine Tanner is in alignment with this general strategy for talking about human nature. And she emphasizes that if we take Nissen's theology seriously, we cannot consider human beings apart from that plasticity, that receptivity to whatever they are paying attention to, be it parents, be it society at large, or God as revealed in Jesus Christ. In fact, if we take Gregory seriously, then we shouldn't expect anything else at all. Because what is the destiny of humanity? To become more like God. That's the union that happens in life of Moses, that journey of epictasis that humans are destined for, and that we'll be talking about in next week's supplemental. Now, if humans are able to become like God, that means they must be able to become like that which they are not. Because people, on their own, aren't very godlike. In other words, our plasticity is a precondition for our hope. Without it, we would be trapped in our own nature, unable to ever take in more, unable to become unlike that which we are by nature. Tanner and others thus see in Gregory a prefigurement of postmodern sociological insight, and therefore a very helpful conversation partner as they attempt to spell out what it means to be a human person. So that's trend number one. Trend number two, prominent in Western thought, 
values Gregory as the preeminent theologian of mystical union with God. We'll talk a little bit more about some of Gregory's thoughts on this subject in the life of Moses. Again, we'll do that episode next week in a supplemental, so I won't repeat that, but I do want to talk a little bit about how Gregory's scheme of mystical progress has been interpreted. The premier study of Gregory in this regard is probably Platonism and Mystical Theology, the Spiritual Doctrine of St. Gregory of Nyssa, written by Jean Danilou and initially published in French in 1944. Now, most of this work is an explanation of Gregory's account of spiritual progress. But in this explanation, Danilou is particularly focused on two related questions. First, the relationship between Gregory's Christian theology and Platonic philosophy, and second, between intellect and will in the redeemed soul. One very common criticism that you'll hear made of Gregory of Nyssa is that his thought isn't actually all that Christian. I mean, Greg's a Christian and all, but is his thought really all that informed by the Bible? No, this criticism goes. Because you know who else Gregory really liked? Plato. Yeah, he liked Plato so much. And Plato's dialogues are all over Gregory's thoughts. There are allusions, overt and subtle, to Platonic dialogues everywhere. Everywhere in his writing. And some of the things Gregory likes to insist on, for example, that humans are rational beings who need to be more rational and less governed by the passions, well, it's hard to find that said in the Bible. Those spits seem to be drawn primarily from Plato. So the argument goes that Gregory is not so much giving us a Christian vision of life as a Platonic vision of life dressed up in Christian vocabulary. And there are lots of people who will tell you that this argument is right. This is exactly what Gregory of Nyssa is doing. Danny Lou, however, says that this argument is hot garbage. And most of his book is dedicated to a systematic refutation of this position. For one thing, Gregory is hardly the only Platonist in his day. Platonism was the premier philosophy of the 4th century, and it influenced everybody, orthodox or heretical. Why people single out Gregory for being unduly influenced by Plato is an important question, and one that is harder for the critics to answer. But more crucial to Danny Lou's argument is that Gregory makes significant modifications to the Platonic scheme. He Christianizes it in really important ways. Case in point. For Plato, the way that human beings redeem themselves, or fix themselves, if you don't want to use such Christian language, is by knowing things. You learn the nature of reality by questioning what is true. You begin with your intuition. You might say, well, I know that this piece of art is beautiful. I know that litter is ugly. I know that this law is just and that law is unjust. And then you start to ask questions. Why is this law just and this other law is unjust? What is justice anyway? And why is this one thing beautiful and this other thing ugly? What is beauty? And through this process, you slowly come to some awareness of the ideas behind your intuitions. You come to a sense of what justice is, a sense of what beauty is. And in that process, you are transformed. Eventually, you will come to the very highest and most important idea of all, which is goodness. As you complete your understanding of goodness, you become maximally good yourself. That, for Plato, 
is how human beings overcome their limitations. In other words, human beings are improved primarily by using their minds. The problems we all have stem from the fact that our understanding is corrupted. As we repair our understanding, our humanity is restored in the process. Gregory, however, has a rather different picture of how this works. Because, as you may remember, he is quite adamant that we can't actually understand God in God's fullness. The human mind is quite simply not up to the task of understanding an infinite God. So for Gregory, the redemption of humanity can't just be a matter of understanding things. Because if that's the case, then we're all hosed. So Danny Lou argues that Gregory sees intellect sort of falling out of the picture once we attain union with God. Of course, we have to learn many things. We have to learn how to live a good life, how to avoid sin, what God commands and promises in the scriptures, and we do most of that earlier in the spiritual journey. But once we reach union with God, we are uniting with what is, by definition, beyond our knowledge. So our growth comes not by an increase in understanding, but an increase in love. For Gregory, then, it is love and not understanding that is ultimately the most important factor in our journey to God. While Gregory makes use of Platonic ideals and imagery, he does not simply adopt a Platonic scheme and dress it up in Christian language. Quite the opposite. The dressings are Platonic, but the underlying theology is Christian. Now, Danny Lou makes this argument for two reasons. First, he wants to preserve interest in Gregory's status as a Christian thinker, someone who's worthy of our spiritual interests, not just a late Platonic philosopher. Second, Danny Lou is trying to recruit Gregory into a long-standing debate within Catholicism about the relationship between the intellect and the will. I have already spent way too much time in this episode talking about intra-Catholic debates, so I'm going to keep this brief. Long story short, since about the Middle Ages, Catholics have been arguing about whether uniting with God is more like an act of the intellect or an act of the will. Now, an act of the intellect is not the same thing as understanding. An act of the intellect is higher than understanding. It's that sort of quasi-mystical sight when you suddenly see how something is true, how it could never not be true, in a way that might not be easy to put into words. It's kind of like when you suddenly grasp why a geometric proof works or when you deeply appreciate how powerful a poem's wordplay is, when you come into a kind of one-on-one -on -one encounter with truth, in whatever form that takes. Now, an act of the will, on the other hand, is a passion so intense and a desire so strong that it unites us to God even when we do not know God. In other words, when we're talking about this act of the will, we're talking about love. Thomas Aquinas tended to say that union with God was more like an act of the intellect. Franciscans have tended to say it's more like an act of the will, and everybody else has picked a side or popped some popcorn and watched them duke it out. Part of what Danny Lou is doing in this work is positioning Gregory in a way that allows him to speak to these debates that began a millennium after his death. It speaks to Gregory's creativity and the eternal relevance of his thought. People are still looking to him, to intervene in debates that happen in very, very different times and places than his own. And there are yet more ways in which Gregory speaks to us today. Other theologians, Sarah Coakley's probably the most notable one, find that Gregory has much to say about the way we theologize about gender. 
For you listeners who don't know much about contemporary gender theory, let me catch you up to speed very, very briefly. And for those of you listeners who do know a lot about gender theory, please be nice to me. I'm going to have to go through this really fast and summarize a lot of stuff. Please don't write angry emails to me about how I didn't talk about your favorite thinker. I've got like three, four minute stops to explain this. Okay, so very briefly, let's talk about the difference between sex and gender. Sex, as it's usually used, encompasses biologically determined differences between humans. For example, having a Y chromosome or not, or having a penis or a vagina. Those things are biological differences. Now, on the basis of those differences, societies often expect people to act in particular ways that have nothing to do with biology. Think about statements like, real men don't cry, or women always go to the bathroom in groups. Now, at a biological level, those statements make absolutely no sense. Men have tear ducts just like women, men feel sadness just like women do, and women are just as biologically capable of going to the bathroom on their own as men. So what are these statements? They're not about biology. They are prescriptive statements about the ways in which our culture expects men and women to behave, and often the ways our culture punishes them if they don't. These sorts of expectations and assumed knowledge are what comprise the idea of gender, that biological sex differences are always correlated to differences in behavior, emotion, etc. I should mention here that some thinkers will go so far as to say that the category of biological sex is actually unimportant, that everything culturally relevant in these conversations has to do with gender. I'm going to stay out of that argument, I'm also going to stay out of the long and rich argument about how exactly our gendered expectations get built up, because that's going to take way too long. The important thing for our purposes is that gendered expectations are a function of the way we talk and act about gender, and they are communicated in every statement we make, every analogy we use in which gender is a part. And that has pretty big implications for the way we talk about God, because of course, the traditional language used for God is all masculine. Father, son, king, lord, etc. Now, you can say that those are just analogies, nothing more. And of course, we shouldn't think of God being literally male. I mean, God doesn't have a body, so God doesn't have any traits of biological male sex. Or female sex, for that matter. But gender theorists will say, you're missing the point. Our language reinforces or deconstructs gendered expectations. That's just what it does. It's inescapable. And so if you consistently refer to the creator and ruler of the universe as male, that's going to have an impact on society. It's going to reinforce the very old, very bad notion of patriarchy, that men are in charge of the world and that women are expected to be subservient and submissive to them. There is a whole lot more we could say about the Trinity and patriarchy, and I will probably do a supplemental on it at some point. But all of this is just to say that there is a lot of interest in contemporary theology about whether traditional language of God can be put to anti-patriarchal ends, or if we just have to get rid of it entirely. Do we need to stop referring to God as Father? Do we need to refer to God as Father and Mother equally? Now you, as an alert and eager listener of this podcast, have already heard the supplemental episode on the life of Macrina, so you already know that Gregory has some interesting thoughts about gender that can cut both ways. 
Sarah Coakley and others have seen even more interesting thoughts about gender in Gregory's commentary on the Song of Songs. For as Gregory is describing union with God, he suggests that all souls have to become kind of, well, feminine. This passage from one of his homilies is worth quoting in full, and I quote, Having thus become a flower, the soul is not injured by the thorny temptations in her transformation into lily. She forgets the people in the house of her father and looks to her true father. Therefore she is named Sister of the Son, having been introduced by the spirit of adoption into this relationship and released from the fellowship with the daughters of the false father. And so she becomes still more sublime and gazes at the mystery through Dove's eyes. I mean, she does this by the spirit of prophecy. End quote. Now, it's important to remember that this feminization is a metaphor. Gregory doesn't think that souls are male or female or any other gender, strictly speaking. But in the realm of gender, metaphors matter. And what Gregory is saying is that one consequence of sanctification, one consequence of the Holy Spirit's work in us, is that we take on more feminine traits as they were defined in Gregory's day. This is fascinating and complicated and rich. Even in the confines of the patriarchal system, Gregory is saying that our human perfection means becoming more womanly, in a spiritual sense. And it's also true that these feminine souls can do some rather um, masculine things. For in the same homily, he says that we can spread God's love to others, because once our souls become God's brides, feminine imagery again, we are like arrows in God's quiver, dipped in the Holy Spirit, and ready to be shot into another heart to spread God's love into another. You don't have to be Sigmund Freud to notice that this is pretty phallic imagery, which means that in its journey to God, the soul is going through all sorts of funky gender transformations, taking on aspects of both masculinity and femininity as conceived in Gregory's time. Perhaps, thinking today, we might even say there's something kind of trans about the process of redemption. Coakley and others take these to destabilize the gender paradigm altogether. It's a way of reminding us that these categories are artificially constructed and that they have to be transcended, maybe even discarded altogether, for us to unite with God. And in so doing, we get to a point where our gendered accounts of God are themselves overcome. As Gregory will say in that commentary on the terms mother and father, quote, both terms mean the same because the divine is neither male nor female, end quote. We may call God Father, but Gregory is very clear that we can use mother language and say the same thing. As you can surely see by now, the last century has resulted in an explosion of scholarship on the Nissen, with Gregory's thought being applied to every manner of theological question at hand. But you may be noticing that I've mostly talked about folks in the West, has there been a similar reaction to Gregory in the East? Well, the answer is only kind of. There hasn't been the same explosion of interest in Gregory in this century, because Gregory was never lost in the East. Go back to the fall of Rome. Picture it all again. The Germanic tribes invading the capital, the destruction of knowledge, the demise of culture and communication across the entire Western Empire. And then picture... Not really caring 
because you are safely ensconced in Constantinople, half an empire away, munching on your baklava and sipping your wine, listening to good Greek music and reading good Greek theology. I mean, you care a bit, of course. It's never fun to watch half the empire go up in flames. But ever since Diocletian split the empire up into separate administrative units, the political bonds between East and West were weakened. And that was kind of the point. Diocletian's idea was that even if you had a rough time in one part of the empire, the other part could go on. Which is precisely what happened. In the East, knowledge of Greek was still strong, the Greek-speaking Cappadocians were still red, and the Latin-speaking Augustine's influence was considerably weaker. So they just kept right on thinking, with Basil and Athanasius and the Gregories and all the rest. Perhaps they hoped that the Latin-speaking West would become less of a dumpster fire one day, but they could go on perfectly well without them. Now, because Gregory of Nyssa was read with all the other pro-Nicene thinkers, he was generally less important as an individual thinker than he was in the West. The same thinkers who cite him are generally also citing Basil and Gregory of Nazianzus and Athanasius. That group has been very, very important to some modern conversations in Eastern Orthodoxy and between East and West in general. One of these conversations goes back to an exiled Russian theologian named Vladimir Losky. In his 1994 book, The Mystical Theology of the Eastern Church, Losky wanted to argue that there were two groups of theologians who had lost their way. One was Losky's immediate predecessors in Russian theology, the so-called Sophiologists. The Russian Sophiologists are super fun and super weird and one of my favorite groups to study, which is why it kills me to say that we don't have time to talk about them more. To make a long story short, the Russian sophiologists adopted certain Western European philosophical trends, like German idealism, and used them quite heavily in their theologizing, and they were pretty confident that we could know quite a bit about God, especially using these secular Western philosophical ideas. Losky thought that they were totally wrong, and actually worked to get some of their theology officially condemned by the Church. And, of course, there was a second group that Losky thought had gotten the God thing all wrong, all of Western Christendom. That's quite a bold statement to make, but Losky stands behind it. He thinks that Western Christianity has gone astray because it has forgotten two key inheritances from the Cappadocian Fathers. First, Western Christians have forgotten what all those Greek terms like usia and hypostasis actually mean, and our Trinitarian theology has gone astray as a result. Second, Western Christians have not respected the insistence of the Cappadocians that we cannot know the totality of God's being. The result is that Western Christians have lost the mystical character of the theology as a journey into that which can never be fully grasped. Losky proposes that the solution for both of these groups is to join him in what has been called a neopatristic synthesis. In other words, the way forward for theology is to go back, carefully rereading the church fathers, Gregory of Nyssa among them, and apply their insights to the challenges of the day. In some ways, this trend dovetails rather nicely with the Western trend from Jean Danielou that highlights the mystical and apophatic dimensions of Gregory's thought. It has also given ammunition to some folks who want to extend Losky's critiques of Western theology. 
Some Eastern theologians have repeated the old trope that there is a fundamental difference between Eastern and Western theologies of the Trinity. They will tell you that Western theologians begin with the unity of the divine substance and then proceed to describe the three persons, while on the other hand, Eastern theologians start with the three persons as their fundamental beginning ground of theology. And then they will wax poetic about how this means that personhood is more important as a philosophical concept than being, and how we need to rethink our whole philosophy of being and God and everything because of it. And how will they defend this account? Well, by looking at Gregory of Nyssa, among others. After all, we read his letter to Oblavius, and didn't it do exactly that? Begin with the three persons and then reason to the unity of the one God? Walter Tully and Augustine and those Latin-speaking Western theologians are using psychological analogies, beginning with the one God and then describing the Son and Spirit as faculties of a divine mind? Except you know by now that that line of reasoning is way too simple. The letter to Oblavius is a lot more complicated than that story makes out. And in fact, in some of Gregory's lesser works, like the Catechetical Oration, Gregory makes use of a psychological analogy very much like what those Latin theologians used. So, Gregory is not really a spokesperson for a uniquely Eastern Trinitarian theology. I'm not even convinced there is such a thing. But the good news, dear reader, is that after these past two months of hearing about Gregory of Nyssa, you are much more historically informed about all these things, and you will be much better able to make sense of Gregory's contributions to church history. And now, it is time to leave the Nissen behind, for there is yet a third Cappadocian father we have to speak of, the friend of the family, the brilliant orator, Gregory of Nazianzus. It's to him we turn as we close out our exploration of the new pro-Nicene theologians. But not quite yet, for Christmas is just around the corner, and while we have a few bits of supplemental content planned out for you, we won't be getting back into the main episodes until the new year. So poor Gregory of Nazianzus will just have to wait for his turn in the spotlight a little bit longer. But who knows? Christmas is coming, after all. Maybe there will be a Christmas miracle to give him a little company as he waits by the side of the road, his thumb out, hoping to hitchhike a metaphorical ride on this podcast. His destination? The same as ours, of course. The only way there? The road to Nicaea. This is an Earth and Alter Podcast Network production. For more podcasts and weekly articles, visit us at earthandaltermag.com.